Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 178 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Targeted Treatment, an interview with Dr. Alexander Shope and Gary Shope of Contamination Source Identification. My name is Richard Johansson. And I'm Matt Zabatello. Matt, one of the worst things about the Lyme disease experience is that the Lyme disease testing just sucks. People are unfortunately on these long journeys because doctors don't have the tools they need to determine, at least in their minds, whether or not someone's suffering from Lyme disease or not. And now we may have found a group of people who are going to change that problem. And Rich, what always makes me weary about new technology is that the Lyme wars get in the way and these companies get deterred. But Dr. Shope and Gary will not be deterred. They have a long career in advancing medical technologies into the marketplace. And Gary assured us he's going to push this through and we'll have this testing available within the next year. So Matt, I think it's really exciting that we have something called untargeted testing for targeted Lyme disease treatment. And without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce contamination source identification with Dr. Alexander Shope and Gary Shope. Hey, Gary and Alex, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rich. Good to be here. We are really excited to have you guys. I, I want you to know that um, you are uh, a part of a very select group of people who do not have Lyme disease that have been made, who have made it onto our podcast. So welcome non-Lymies to the podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be in that category, actually, based on everything I've learned. Yes, uh, me too. So um, the reason we invited you folks to come onto the podcast today is because we've been doing a series of podcast episodes on testing. And it's one of the places where we think um, there needs to be a substantial change. There are people who have been on diagnostic journeys for 20 or 30 years in some cases because the diagnostic testing has been so poor. So uh, we want to um, first introduce you, Gary, to the, to the uh, podcast audience. Can, can you please share with uh, our audience your background? Uh, yes, I'm basically, um, uh, I, people refer to me sometimes as a serial entrepreneur, although I don't think I, I deserve that category, but uh, I've been in the medical device business for about 40 plus years, mainly in the cardiovascular and orthopedic businesses. And uh, a few years back, I sold a company to, um, I, I sold a, a, an innovative hemostatic agent to a big uh, um, uh, company and retired. And then um, I came out of retirement and uh, decided to get, get back in the saddle and um, created actually one company that is an antimicrobial technology. And uh, there was a, a, and I've created a spinoff now called contamination source identification that, that is a, diagno- a molecular biology di- diagnostic lab. So I've been doing this for a long time, but uh, uh, like I said, I just came out of retirement to do this. Well, welcome back. So Alex, can you uh, please introduce yourself to our audience and share your background? Yeah, sure, Rich. Uh, so I'm Dr. Alexander uh, Shope. Um, my background, I'm obviously a physician. I went to uh, Penn State's College of Medicine. Um, I, after that, actually, I went and spent a year doing a research fellowship at uh, Roth and Orthopedics in Philadelphia, where I was working with uh, Dr. Javad Parvizi, who is sort of the thought leader and Max opinion leader on infected uh, uh, total joints uh, and uh, really just uh, kind of sank my teeth into some more of the infectious disease diagnostics uh, there with him and learned about some of these new innovative techniques. Um, and sort of while there, my father was uh, kind of starting this journey with CSI, I introduced uh, CSI to Dr. Parvizi 
and then ran the uh, studies that uh, we did alongside the CSI and got really um, interested in it. And uh, frankly, I was kind of, I've always been interested in business and innovation and made the decision that this was going to be my career path and, you know, hopped out of clinical medicine so that I could pursue this and help, uh, you know, bring this, well, both our companies actually to, uh, to the market. So Gary, let's talk about the entrepreneurial model as a serial entrepreneur. Um, I'd like you to talk to us about why you believe the best model for helping folks in the Lyme disease community is the entrepreneurial model rather than an academic model or a not-for-profit model or some other model. Well, that's, that's a great question because what's interesting about this, uh, our company is in uh, central Pennsylvania, a little town called Huntington, Pennsylvania. And actually, when we first did this, when Dr. Parvizi uh, first challenged us about proving our worthiness in this diagnostic capabilities. He literally said, are there roads that go into Huntington, Pennsylvania? We're right over the mountain from Penn State. But I, I assured him that uh, Federal Express delivered at 1030 in the morning in Huntington, Pennsylvania, just like they did in Philadelphia so that the, our, our clinical samples could get there. But um, the entrepreneurial model is, is good because there, there are many, many issues involved, but uh, being able to change on a dime is and, and being able and, and for instance our changing from our focus on orthopedic and sepsis and other unmet needs in, in clinical medicine and all and quickly changing to Lyme because we the and tick-borne diseases because we recognize the dramatic unmet need is something that doesn't happen in a big corporation. And also being untethered to a large academic institution and, and uh, all the layers and structure that hold you back. I, I, I became, I'm not gonna name the institutions. Uh, I was uh, actually uh, uh, trying to create a business whereby we could bring the technologies that are, that are captured in at these medical academic institutions and bring them to the, to the marketplace. And that's not easily done because of all the layers of consideration in those places. So um, my experience has been that small companies can recognize an unmet need and can execute. Our goal is actually to um, spin the company back to a larger entity that can really take advantage and, and bring it to the broader audience, both in the US and the United States. But, so, but the startup process and our ability to work with the scientists and, and get things moving in the right direction without having to go through meeting after meeting is important. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's- a It does, I, I appreciate that answer and I, I really like it. So Gary, before we move on, I actually have to ask your permission for something. I, I was recently slapped across my hand with a ruler by one of our followers because I referred to a doctor guest as doctor and I referred to the non-doctor guest by their first name. Do you have any objection to me referring to your son as Dr. Shope and you as Gary during the rest of this podcast? No, I, I do not. Uh, you know, his mother has made it clear that that's the way it should be. Okay, so <laughs> so, so Dr. Shope, um, and am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Is it Shope? Shope, yes. Oh, yeah. So, Dr. Shope, please share with us why you chose to move into the entrepreneurial model and you moved away from either the traditional hospital model or an academic model for doing your work. Well, so uh, growing up, actually, uh, you know, with my father being in the kind of, uh, you know, medical device uh, field um, and obviously then being an entrepreneur himself and uh, just watching everything he did, I well, Funny stories I used to tell him when I was younger. I just knew I didn't want to do what he did, and here I am doing the exact same thing. 
but uh, he, he naturally had a lot of physician friends, many of them as medicine has changed throughout the years and become more health system based, um, had left clinical medicine and gone on to do things in industry. And that always uh, just intrigued me so much because I saw myself as a physician owning my own practice, being able to kind of have more control over the business side of things. And that's just not how medicine is anymore. It's all large health systems. It's all um, really becoming, you know, these um, MBAs and executives telling the doctors how to, you know, see their patients, how many they have to see. And I really had took issue with that and just didn't like that type of a model. Um, but uh, one, one of, uh, you know, my father's uh, good friends, uh, Dr. Uh, James Hart, who's a just fabulous cardiothoracic surgeon, um, he's now retired. He had left clinical medicine and gone into industry, worked for uh, uh, Johnson & Johnson and was their uh, CMO, actually, for their Ethicon division, I believe, before retiring. But he said something really interesting to me one time that always resonates, and it's what I live by now. He could have seen, you know, 30 patients a day, you know, operated on, you know, a couple thousand a year, change those lives. And that that's great. That's fantastic. But by stepping away from that, that type of medicine and becoming this more, you know, entrepreneurial thing and driving a new technology to market, you can impact millions of people by having something like that. And I truly think we have a technology that's going to be able to do that here in the long term. So that's sort of been my journey and what pushed me in this direction. And I want you to pause on that technology for a moment because I need to get a little more background from, uh, from Gary. So Gary, talk to us about CSI and the type of work CSI has done other than in the Lyme arena. And we'll get to Lyme in a minute with, uh, with Dr. Show. Well, actually CSI's focus and, and business focus uh, wasn't originally Lyme. As I mentioned, it, 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 was, it was an afterthought, but um, our, our business, we've created a platform in, in infectious disease diagnostics that nobody else in the world is doing right now. So uh, uh, the, the scientists, including Alex, that uh, my, my co-founders, Dr. Regina Lamadella and, uh, and, and Justin Wright, um, have figured out how to uh, analyze RNA sequencing um, in, in, in such a short period of time. So uh, we were focused on sepsis and prosthetic joints and, and post-cardiac uh, procedure infections and also all, uh, th all those unmet needs. Um, so uh, our, our business focus is still, we still believe that that is going to drive us to the acquisition phase so that a bigger company will be interested. Also, the, the value proposition, and this is sort of inside information, but reality is the value proposition of CSI is actually the bioinformatics or the amount of information we gather. I mean, we were looking at uh, COVID variants last year because we're RNA sequencing. We do whole, whole genome um, RNA sequencing. So we see the entire pathogen, so to speak, so we can definitively define it. Uh, but uh, the bioinformatics and the updating of our database and the patents that we have on how we handle that information will grow and grow and grow. And then in the future, when they're looking to create new antibiotics, new vaccines, they're going to want to know what the latest mutations is for all pathogens, not just bacteria for antibiotic resistance, but viruses. And in the case of, of uh, tick-borne diseases and Lyme disease, we don't know at this particular point what's happening to the 
to the uh, bugs that with regard to mutating and maybe warding off the antibiotic therapy that, that they're given. So um, our direction is to create the platform that analyzes that and takes that forward uh, for, for the future as well as the present. The diagnostic capability is, is good because it treats patients or it, 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 it defines uh, disease states today, but the future of uh, you know, artificial intelligence and predictive medicine and precision medicine is really what we're all about. Okay, so Dr. Shope, you now have to interpret that for us um, because that was, that was uh, very powerful, but certainly way over my head. So Dr. Shope, tell me about what is different about what you folks are doing there and sort of unpack what your dad just uh, outlined for us. Happy to do that. You know, it's funny, it's usually opposite. I'm, I'm the one that says those complex things and then he yells at me and tells me I have to be more simple or something. So this is funny, shoes on the other foot today. Um, so uh, what makes us very different from everybody else, um, culturing was always sort of your gold standard, you know, growing things in Petri dishes. Um, and that takes, you know, several days, you know, and it just, it was an inefficient method. Now, there are new methods out there that are trying to harness the power of DNA because everybody knows about ancestry, DNA, um, uh, 23andMe, swab and cheeks, you know, getting uh, uh, sequencing data back that says, hey, here's where I'm from. Um, there are other techniques that are very, they're targeted. They fo focus on a very small gene region. It's kind of like a fishing hook. They go looking for a small gene segment that is associated with a pathogen and they run these panels. Um, that has problems because maybe it, an infection or something's being caused by something that's not on your panel. You don't have the right hook or the right bait. So the natural next step beyond that is uh, doing something that is untargeted, which is what we do. We, we don't focus at all on a specific gene. We just sequence everything that's there. Furthermore, um, the other problem with DNA is that it, can, it doesn't indicate whether something's living or dead. You, you can find DNA on dinosaur bones and you know, find remnants of it. It's a stable molecule. RNA, on the other hand, um, is an exact copy of the DNA, but it's very unstable because of its uh, just uh, molecular nature. Um, after a cell dies, it's only around for about 30 or 40 seconds at most. So if you can identify something based off of an RNA signature in this untargeted manner without uh, fishing hooks and things, you have a much better chance and better understanding of what's truly active and causing an infection. Um, we sometimes liken our tests to uh, fishing with dynamite instead of hooks if we want to stick in the same type of analogy <laughs> uh, uh, framework there. Dr. Shope, before we go into the different type of testing modalities today in the Lyme world, I want to ask you about the difference between RNA and DNA because we've learned from past podcast guests that DNA and, and the dead Lyme bacteria can actually have a negative impact on your health as well. So it sounds like you guys focus more on the RNA, but is there an implication that DNA can have in keeping people sick as well with chronic Lyme and tick-borne illnesses? So I know that is uh, pretty uh, widely debated, and there's also a bit of a debate about how long the DNA can circulate within your system. Does your body clear it? Does it get broken down by other proteins called DNases? Um, so I don't think that there is a specific and definitive answer. I think that it potentially could. I recently read a paper where they were finding some um, antigens or leftover uh, proteins from the Borrelia species, you know, embedded into the synovial, uh, uh, the synovium of uh, the patient's joints. And they think that could be causing some inflammatory reactions. 
So there is a chance that uh, some of these dead bacteria and what's left over from them can cause some aspects of chronic Lyme. But the actual nice thing, and this gets a little complex about um, our technology, you know, we are RNA sequencing, but in the nature of how we do that method, we actually are able to analyze some of the DNA as well, but we then take it from a computer processing standpoint and can remove certain aspects of that and then focus in on the RNA. So we do um, harness some of that DNA data if it is there, but we kind of, the, the RNA data is what's really highlighted then. So before we go into the details about your specific testing that you're working on, can you talk to us generally about the current Lyme tests that exist and, and other tick-borne illnesses and why they're flawed in, in different areas? So for example, talk to us about the traditional ELISA, the, the Western blot, and then what's being done by some of these big Lyme testing labs. Absolutely. Um, so let's uh, let's start right with the uh, Eliza Western blotting method, which uh, for whatever reason is still the gold standard because it is quite flawed. Um, so what that is doing is simply looking for your immune system's reaction to a pathogen. Um, you know, your body naturally produ produces antibodies when it sees um, something that's not supposed to be there. Um, the thought process then being, okay, if your body's reacting to a, you know, a Borrelia species or to some type of tick-borne pathogen, it's eventually going to produce antibodies. So if you detect the antibodies, therefore you should be sick. The problem is, is, is that the secondary test they use, the Western blot, um, create these little banding patterns. It looks for specific proteins and they've created a pattern that says, oh, you have to have so many of those bands before you're positive. And I'm sure you're uh, I'm sure the listeners here probably know uh, much of that already. The issue with that is it's it's outdated. Um, there are certain periods of time that it takes your body to build up the antibody response to the um, bacteria. So you might not be positive right away or within a certain time frame. But furthermore, um, there are certain bacteria that don't necessarily create those proper banding patterns on the Western blot. So there are multiple levels about why that is uh, uh, just a flawed test. Um, it's also not a direct detection of the pathogen too. So it used to be the best way of doing it, but we have much better technologies out there now to directly detect these types of um, pathogens that really can hide from um, you know, the old altering methods. D Dr. Schoen, I'm sorry to interrupt, but before we go on to another testing method, can you talk to the fact of that there are different strains of the Lyme bacteria and these, these Western blots in the ELISA only look for certain strains and also what impact a chronic Lyme patient would have on these testing if they're immunocompromised? Certainly. Um, so, I mean, all bacteria um, um, have different uh, strains and the strain being just a different uh, genetic variant of them. Um, when their genetics change, typically that changes the, you know, at some different structures within the bacteria itself. It could be the outer proteins they express, it could be some of their internal mechanisms. So some of these different strains and different species of the same, you know, genus, you know, the Borrelia genus might have different proteins that would not get tagged on that um, Western blots um, the same way as, you know, the, as what the original Borrelia burgdorferi did. Even the Borrelia burgdorferi, because everything mutates and changes over time, that's natural selection. It, you know, if you don't update your um, your diagnostic criteria to the banding patterns you see or expand it, you're not going to, you know, follow what's happening from an evolutionary standpoint, and therefore it's going to eventually evade, you know, the detection method. 
So now that we understand, uh, and I think most of our listeners understand that the, the, the current line testing, at least in the Western flight, is just god awful. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit more about these other tests that are available that are recognized in the chronic Lyme community, but also why they may not be as perfect as we think they are as well? Certainly. Um, so I know uh, some of the other uh, newer techniques and things too, whether it be, you know, some have used different criteria, they expand upon the uh, different banding patterns. Like I said, they also, um, you know, look for numerous other pathogens as well. Um, one of the things that I see commonly, especially within other um, infectious diseases, would be a, a test called a PCR test um, that stands for polymerase chain reaction, which gets technical, but essentially that's the uh, fishing with hooks type thing um, that I mentioned earlier. They're taking um, known segments of these bacteria's uh, uh, genes that are in you know, their DNA, and they say, hey, this segment is associated with this bacteria or this particular strain of bacteria and they create this little panel. So they go in and they get these little um, primers that will latch on and then get amplified and that creates the detection. But again, the, the problem with that is if it's, if they're not looking for it, if they don't have a particular, um, you know, a particular uh, primer for a specific species, they'll miss it. Again, then we run into the same problem with the ELISA and the Western blots, where I mentioned the evolution of the bacteria. You know, that DNA changes over time. And so at some point, those primers could be missing things as the bacteria rapidly change and evolve. And, uh, you know, can, then those primers won't work. So again, that can be a problem, um, let alone that, you know, if the, the, the bacteria is actually potentially dead the primers will pick that up, but maybe it's the living organism that they're not detecting. So Gary, let's take this back to the introduction you gave us a moment ago, which was you're using AI and other tools to now look for a broader spectrum rather than having the metaphor that your son had used, the fishing hook to hook just one sing singular fish. Talk to us about how you're doing it differently than they would be doing it with a traditional PCR test. Well, um, um, actually, when I was talking about AI and predictive medicine, we're actually uh, that that's more of a futurist, futuristic view. Um, and and um, our, our lab is is the only that we're aware of, the only vertically integrated lab in that we do all of even though we're just a small company in central Pennsylvania. We're the only lab that does our own lab, our own wet lab work, our own sequencing work. And I've referred to our bioinformatics. We have our own supercomputer on site where all that information is, it's, it, and, and we've invested in a, in what's called a laboratory information management system uh, because we found out that one of the problems of labs is that they lose, lose uh, samples all the time and reporting systems. So we can dump the information directly into uh, electronic me medical records. Okay, so let's pause there for a second. Tell us why all of that would be significant to somebody who is sending a test sample to you as opposed to another lab. Why would you be better? Well, and I, what what the, because we're, we're because we're we're faster and more complete, and um, uh, the and, and I think the answer to the because I can't I was going to say that we have patents on the wet lab work and patents on the bioinformatics, and I can't get deep into the into into the patents in this conversation with regard to the wet lab work. But we understand what, that. But what, just just let's talk about it on a high level. I I get bitten by a tick. I I decide that I want to work with your lab. I send my urine sample to you. Why would you be better just from a procedural standpoint than me working with another lab? 
Because what our, um, uh, what our test procedure does is that it immediately recognizes within 24 hours of, of receipt of sample, whether, you know, and that, 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 that applies to sepsis and all these other things. We can see exactly what is living. We, we created um, a urine test to make it easier on the patient, even though we can see it in blood as well, but we see everything that's living in the urine um, and, and not just the one or two bugs that somebody else may be looking for. And what used to take uh, companies weeks to, to analyze for that kind of complex and uh, complex analysis, uh, we can now see in minutes. And okay, we can so, so I'm now sending my sample to your lab and mm -hmm. your son was just outlining for us the challenges with traditional PCR testing, which is one hook, one, one pathogen, right? If we use your lab for my urine, are you telling me that we're not going to have one lo hook looking for one pathogen, but there's going to be a whole broad spectrum of pathogens that are going to be evaluated and provided to me and my physician in a very short period of time? Exactly. Exactly. We're going to see everything that, that is uh, alive. Our, our, what's called our level of detection that has been validated is that we can see as few as three, three pathogens, three, blood, uh, three bugs per milliliter of urine. That is off the charts with regard to being able to see what's there. So, um, you know, to be clinically relevant, I guess, in some of these other tests, I guess you have to see somewhere in the vicinity of 50 to 80 bugs before somebody can, can, can define it. But, but, but we can see just you know, just a, a, minute, a minute number and be able to define. But now, interesting enough, uh, Alex was talking about PCR testing. We're working with a, a, a company that gathers ticks. When you get bit, you can send, send it in. And they're working with us because this collaboration is really important. And they use a PCR method. And they're opening up these ticks and reporting back. And they, they, they've been able to see like four, four or five different pathogens in these ticks. And we've seen a lot of different pathogens in these, in these same ticks because our testing is so specific. So I think one of the issues are, is with regard to patients, and we don't know this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk, talk off the cuff here, but why is it that some of these patients react to antibiotic therapy and, and others don't? And we've learned a lot of, from COVID, for instance, if I can digress a little bit, uh, you, you've, we've watched and, and heard in the news how different people are reacting different to the to the COVID virus, and it has a lot to do with your disease, you know, your 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 immune system, and other disease states you may have on board. Well, isn't it possible that the same thing? There are people that are reacting differently to the uh, to to the, the Lyme bugs and the different pathogens that are showing up, and, and we don't know why. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, if we're seeing everything that may be impacting those chronic Lyme patients. Uh, it, it's going to be a helpful process with regard to problem solving which antibiotics to use because we don't even know that the antibiotics that are currently used today for Lyme patients are being effective for the broad spectrum of pathogens that we're seeing in the urine. So it's, it's a lot of research to be done with regard to the, to the, to the effect of the to treatment. And, and if I could take one step further, you treat somebody today with antibiotic, how do you know that it's cleared? How do you know that it's done? And so that, that ongoing surveillance and being able to specifically say, yes, it's, it's gone. The, 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 living, the living pathogens are no longer there living or no, it's not gone. So we can, we can define the, the uh, treatment therapy. 
So Gary, before we move back, because I know Matt has some questions to ask Dr. Shop, who, by the way, you referred to as Alex by mistake, I think a moment ago. Um, <laughs> it, you, we, there is some research that is suggesting that the, uh, at least the black-legged tick could carry as many as 200 different pathogens. Yet we're currently only testing for at most, I think, seven or eight different pathogens. So can you talk a little bit about how your lab is sort of changing the conversation in that regard? Because viral load is certainly going to be significant to just sort of, um, you know, to tack on to your conversation about uh, COVID, where we know that people were getting sicker when they were, when they had a larger viral load, in addition to those other factors that you outlined. Um, talk to us about what you're finding with the ticks that you're uh, examining and how it's different from the traditional PCR tools that are being used. Uh, well, I'm going to, I'm actually, if you don't mind bouncing that over to the good doctor show here, because, act, because actually he, um, he has a, has a slide in some of his presentations for our for physicians where, where we can show the diversity. And Alex, I actually don't even know the, uh, uh, the number of, of, of additional pathogens we're finding in the live ticks or the ticks that are being sent to us. Yeah, um, so I think we were, we've received so far just, uh, this is hot off the press actually, uh, we received seven ticks. Uh, the PCR method identified uh, regular Borrelia burgdorferi in six of seven, um, as well as uh, then a Babesia uh, species and uh, an anaplasma. So they saw three pathogens total spread across, you know, seven ticks. We did our analysis on those exact same seven ticks we identified the exact same signatures of those three pathogens. And then we also saw an additional, I want to say it was 15, 15 or 20 other pathogens. So that yeah. is very significant in, in, in the tick-borne illness community. But Dr. Chope, I do want to expand upon what we were talking about earlier as far as running these tests for Lyme patients, specifically people that are sick with chronic Lyme and not just looking for Lyme disease and not just looking for several strains of Lyme disease, but also looking for these other co-infections like anaplasma, Babesia, Ehrlichia, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and beyond that, other things like parasites that we know ticks can spit into humans and also viruses we can get from ticks as well. So what breadth of testing are you doing beyond bacteria and Lyme in your testing compared to the ones that are on the market today in the, you know, the top best testing facilities that we have available today for Lyme disease? Um, so again, the unique thing about uh, this RNA-based method is that uh, we actually test for everything all at once. So we're not just looking for bacteria. We're not just looking for viruses. We look for everything all at once as we're capable of seeing all bacteria, um, fungi, viruses, parasites, uh, you know, other eukaryotic uh, organisms. Um, so kind of all the above, which is again, you know, what is so great. It's untargeted and we can see everything that's potentially causing somebody to be sick, including those, you know, the co-infections. We can, you know, catch, you know, the Babesia. We can catch if somebody has, you know, anaplasma and rickettsia, you know, that we see it all at once. Yeah. And I think that's, if I might interrupt there a little bit, that, I mean, that's, that's, that, I don't know that that's, uh, that's the uniqueness of what we bring. You know, whether we bring the differences with one test, we see all of it. We're not looking. We're not looking to validate anybody having just you know, Borrelia. We we see whatever's there. We see it with one test. So, talk to us a little bit more about mutations as well, because I understand that your testing not only can find 
I currently identified viruses, pathogens, et cetera, it also can find mutations that aren't even known yet. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, yeah, because we can uh, utilize, uh, you know, the sequencing data to identify those uh, variants or the mutations within the genes and the DNA, the DNA and RNA itself. And then utilizing our um, database and the bioinformatics with uh, machine learning, we can also potentially predict when certain mutations and other things will pop up. But again, it's sort of like uh, with uh, this COVID, you know, pandemic that we all went through, um, we could potentially, you know, ping something like that where there's all of a sudden like a mutation in something that was, you know, benign before that we've, you know, seen it, it was benign, but we all of a sudden pick up on a mutation is causing an illness because of the nature of um, RNA and our untargeted testing, we can catch things like that and we can just see them right away, which is what is so unique. And the antibiotic resistance as well. Yes, that too. Yeah, so talk to us more about the antibiotic resistance. So how, how is that possible? What are you doing to identify what pathogens are resistant to what antibiotics and how is that information meaningful to doctors and patients? So we always are looking for antibiotic uh, sensitivities uh, uh, for the pathogens that are you know, causing infections with, you know, in the hospitals, when it was culture-based, you know, you were waiting on, they would use little antibiotic discs to see if it would kill the colonies that were growing on the petri dishes. Um, stepping into the molecular world, you know, um, D your DNA is essentially just a recipe book has instructions for everything that your cells need to, um, you know, carry out their lives and their functions. Therefore, if something's resistant to an antibiotic, it's got the instructions built into its DNA. But again, we don't always use all the recipes in you know, your recipe book or in your DNA. So it might have the potential to you know, be resistant, but it might not be actively expressing that. RNA though, if there's RNA, the bacteria is actively trying to express that gene. It's trying to avoid that antibiotic that is associated with that sequence data. And again, it's very, it gets very data heavy and things, but because we can, if we see an antibiotic resistance gene from an RNA signature, that bacteria is trying to express that. And therefore maybe a different antibiotic is the way to go. And that's very important information um, uh, just within the infectious disease uh, community as a whole, um, but also within the tick-borne pathogens as well. So Gary, give us the give us the layperson's uh, analysis on how your tools are going to allow doctors to identify um, strains of a of a pathogen that are going to be resistant to um, antibiotics. Well, if if um, if we if we, if we could just draw a parallel path here with 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 sepsis and and tick borne diseases a little bit. Uh, I think maybe some of this is, is, is understandable because the, the same thing occurs in both disease states. Uh, before COVID, uh, uh, more patients died of sepsis in a hospital than, than anything. One in three patients who died in a hospital died uh, as a result of sepsis. That's statistically, that's what's, what's been published. And, and I learned from the good Dr. Shope that, that, uh, that it's well published that for every for every hour that a sepsis patient doesn't receive the right antibiotic, the mortality rate goes up by 8% per hour. And that's, and, and the physicians are there not knowing what the bug is. So, and again, the same thing occurs with, uh, with as far as I'm concerned, with regard to chronic Lyme patients, you don't know what, why that patient 
continues to be sick because it could be some co-infection or, or, or some uh, ling lingering pathogen. Um, our ability to identify the living pathogen that is replicating, again, the RNA, it tells you what's living. And when, and when, my, when all my young scientists, all these young kids that surround me, all these bright kids, I, I don't know what they're talking about half the time, but in layman's terms, what they're able to see is the pump mechanism, for instance, that the, that the antibodies coming in, the bugs learn to either, uh, when, when you're developing a pharmaceutical, you're developing one mechanism of action and, and pathogens, including, including the pathogens that, as it pertains to uh, tick-borne and Lyme disease, create mechanisms to, to uh, they mutate so that that, that uh, antibiotic doesn't, doesn't affect them. Well, the RNA sequencing is able to see what it's doing in its mutation to cause that to happen. That's what Alex talks about, its expression. And, and so therefore we're able to identify that expression. And in the case of sepsis, and we're assuming when we publish in the case of tick-borne disease, we'll be able to tell the doctors that maybe what's happening here is the normal antibiotic that you give isn't being effective and this thing is not being killed because it's created a, a, a uh, antibiotic resistance mechanism to push it away. So now how are you able to see that the particular pathogen is not is resistant to the antibiotic that has been prescribed by the doctor? I, I, I still, I'm still not clear on how you can do that. Alex, do you have a, a layman's version of what you guys do in, in that complex world of yours? Or some metaphor? <laughs> uh, let me, let me, I'm thinking about a metaphor, the best way to explain it. Um, well, we can, we, we are able to uh, associate from our big supercomputer, we'll pick up the gene sequences associated with the pump or the mechanism that allows them to avoid it. So if, uh, yeah, if they're basically slingshotting the, uh, the antibiotic back out of their system as it comes in, that maybe that's their mechanism. They're building that slingshot based off of a set of instructions, which is essentially the RNA. If we see that RNA set of instructions from our analysis, we can say, hey, don't use the antibiotic that they can slingshot back out of their system use this little hand grenade that they're not going to see coming and allow that to kill the bug. How was that analogy? That, that was, was a kind of very good analogy. So, so Dr. Shope, as, as an IT professional, I, I'm really intrigued by the fact you keep talking about big data and data processing and consuming large quantities of data and interpreting that to provide useful information to doctors and patients. So talk to us a little bit more about this supercomputer that you have in-house and what algorithms that you guys have built to kind of identify not only what what antibiotic resistance these different pathogens have, but also what type of pathogens and bacteria and viruses that you're finding in your test results as well. Right. Well, I mean, I can <laughs> I can talk a little bit about that, but that isn't necessarily my area of expertise. Um, so it's it's what we call our uh, rapid DX uh, bioinformatics pipeline and it's really more uh our business partner justin wright's uh kind of uh, uh really like brilliant work and uh area of expertise there um we have some pat some patent submissions surrounding this so i can't again get too in-depth into it i'll let you know that it's called rapid dx again we just think we like fun acronyms like that essentially it is just you know rapid parallel pathing of the data analysis 
and frankly, that's all the more I really understand of it. But um, but a lot, but being able to process that much data so quickly and then pumping it back out into the electronic medical records and making a, an interpretable report is such a key thing within medicine, and it's going to be so helpful to uh, you know the physicians who are interpreting the data on their end as well as to the patients who are then receiving care. Well, Not sure, I really was able. To to answer your question too well there, but. Well, Matt, the one thing. Answer parts. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Matt, the one thing that maybe, uh, maybe your audience doesn't realize that even though we're making this sound very simplistic, when we go through this process of receiving the sample and then we do the sequencing, we get all this information of the, of the, the genomic makeup of the pathogens. There are hundreds of millions of pieces of information being spit out that goes into this analysis that quickly, you know, like I said, it used to take, take them weeks to do what they can do in minutes with, with, with what, and the, and the systematic approach that um, we have uh, presently, even we're a small company, we have presently, I think four, uh, four folks that do nothing except focus on the, this whole bioinformatics side, this analysis of what, what is the antibiotic resistance expression and everything in this database that we use. And obviously the value of these ticks we're receiving because we plug all that information as a, as a reference library. So the next time we see it, we, we, we can recognize it and update its mutations. But there is hundreds of millions of pieces of data being fed into this thing and spitting out one single answer with regard to what's going on in that patient. So Gary, let's go back to the ticks that you're using as now a reference tool. Are you finding pathogens in the ticks that have not been identified by other researchers yet? And are you feeding that into your system for the comparative purposes that you're using them? Um, I, I'll, I'll start the conversation. I hope Dr. Shope finishes the conversation because actually we, we uh, uh, and the answer to your question is yes, we use all that information to update. And every time, uh, every time our computer system sees a variant, whether it's COVID or whether it's Lyme uh, or tick-borne, it updates it. And that's what we call our living database. That's the, the value proposition. Say, and, and you can imagine four or five years from now when they're saying, hey, I wonder what's out there. They can look at our reference library with regard to all the mutations that we've seen over these four or five years and what's present today. But even in um, our uh, last year, in our initial analysis of some samples that we received from central Pennsylvania, we saw, we saw not only did we see um, uh, uh, samples of Borrelia that's only supposed to be in Europe, but we saw, found it in, in central Pennsylvania, but we did see unidentified Borrelia. So that, that variant was, is now plugged into our library. So it, it will be seen and referenced the next time that comes through our, our scope of our, our view. Now, the, the tick testing is really important, Dr. Show, because I'll give you, I'll use myself as an example. I was bitten by a tick about five weeks ago. We sent the tick out for tick testing and the tick came back clean, meaning none of the traditional pathogens that are looked for with a PCR test were located in the tick that had bitten me. Now, I decided to treat anyway uh, because I believe that it's likely that the, the tick that had bitten me had pathogens that were spit into me that were not identifiable with the traditional PCR test. Are you finding now that the ticks that you're testing are, are harboring pathogens that are not traditionally identified in the eight or nine or 10 
uh, pathogens that are being tested with the traditional PCR test? Uh, yes, uh, the ones that we've uh, tested so far, there were absolutely a number of different uh, Borrelia and uh, Rickettsial species that were not that I know are not traditionally tested for on uh, regular PCR and tick-borne uh, panels. Anything else? Now, my understanding is that what you folks have the ability to do is test a sample, strip out all the human DNA, and then see what's left. Is that the way mm -hmm. you guys do this? And if that's the way you're doing this, do you believe you'll be able to identify other pathogens that ticks are spitting into us that are not currently being identified? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and that was a very good just kind of uh, overview of uh, one of the things that we're able to do as far as the stripping away and focusing on that very small pathogenic signal that we have uh, that we have in us. But uh, yes, because we're untargeted, um, you know, we'll be able to see anything that is there. Um, and we, you know, we are not panel based. So if it's a new thing that's not typically tested for, we'll still see it if the sequences are there. Yeah, there's a word, a word of caution, though, to those who are listening that that uh, because we've just the, the tick is a, a, a dangerous little bug. But um, the one thing we don't know, as we view all these pathogens, we don't know just just as is the same same thing is true when we deal with hospital acquired infections. You have a whole list of bugs that actually CSI is actually doing a lot of environmental testing in ICUs and hospitals these days. There's a, a in conjunction with that's how CSI got started working with this other company doing surface environmental testing in ICU hospitals. But you, you get this, we, we see this whole list of, of bugs in a hospital, but only a very small number of them really cause the hospital acquired infections. And the one caution with regard to a tick bite, it may introduce all those things, but at this present time, we don't know which, which one and each, each individual might have a different reaction to all those pathogens are being introduced. So which one is causing the, the response or the disease state that the patient is experiencing, we don't really know, but we will see them if they're there. That's the important thing. Well, but Gary, we, we can't even identify them right now, right? I'll go back to my example of my tick bite from five weeks ago, right? right. I don't know what combination of pathogens were spit into me. I just know that those which are traditionally tested were not spit into me, at least with the PCR test that was done, right? So we, we can spend a lot of time talking about first, identifying what is spit into us versus what's not spit into us. But we can also now identify combinations because we recognize that, let's, let's put aside the differences that each one of us have physiologically, but we also know that the combination of, of a multi-germ infection is going to be different because of the combination. And we don't necessarily have the ability to determine what the combination is if we are using some test other than the system you appear to be using, which is to strip out the human DNA, and now we can see everything in there, right? So we, you know, one of the things we recently, we, we recently learned from an interview we did with Dr. Alan McDonald is that there are many pathogens that are being spit into us that are not bacteria, that are not viral, that, that are, are not necessarily parasitical that, or parasitic that are also causing us to get sick. And it seems to me that the only way that we could identify those pathogens as potentially causing us to get sick, Gary, would be to strip out the human DNA and see what else is left. Or am I wrong? 
No, that that that's that's exactly what I do. You know, I, I'm I'm getting a chuckle. The fact that we've we've uh, we've invented a new term for the introduction of pathogens. We're, we're the bugs are spitting them into us now. I got to because, but uh, no, that's what they do. Yeah. I, you know, what what you're describing actually, we 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 keep circling the wagons here. But what you just described is exactly what we do. That that and when we keep we use the terms untargeted whole genome sequencing, which means that. And actually, uh, Dr. Shope always used, when we're talking uh, prosthetic joint or sepsis, he always, uh, that, 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 that actually the secret sauce of what we do with regard to blood, urine, uh, synovial fluid, cerebrospinal fluid is exactly that. The reason that all these other computational methods are slow with regard to what we're doing is because all that human RNA signal is there. And what, uh, what our folks have figured out how to do, and Alex, Alex uh, always says it's like, looking for a needle in a haystack. What we figured out how to do is to burn the haystack and walk in and pick up the needle. So all the needles of the pathogens that the, that the tick has introduced in, into you, that we, we will burn that haystack and see every single needle that is in your urine or in your blood, because yeah, we, we just figured it's easier for the patients to give us urine samples versus blood samples. So Dr. Shobe, I know that what may make me sick may not make you sick. And I think we sort of learned that with uh, tick man Dan that we had on the presentation earlier in the week where he's been bitten by ticks hundreds of times and never got sick. Right. So clearly there's something unique in his situation that's helping him stay healthy. Whereas something in my situation caused me to get chronically ill from various tick bites. So I think compiling all the information that we can get after what's left from stripping out the, the human part of the RNA and leaving all of the, the pathogens that information is going to be super helpful because we're all uniquely different in regards to what may make us sick individually. Is that something that you would agree with from a medical standpoint? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, that, that was very well said. Um, I, I think that that is very key because we are all different in our immune systems and the various factors, uh, you know, that make up who we are in our physiology, um, you know, are different. And, uh, you know, yeah, Thick Van Dan, who is, you know, I forget how many times he said that he's pulled a tick off himself. It was pretty astounding how many, though, and he's uh, never had Lyme disease or anything. But uh, yeah, the fact the fact is he might have some sort of a protective mechanism that maybe you or I just don't inherently have. And compiling all of that data along with, uh, you know, as we continue to study this and having the patient's data, you know, their disease history, their uh, clinical symptoms and manifestations, in addition to all of the pathogenic data that we are generating from the actual samples themselves, feeding that into the machine learning algorithms, which I don't personally completely understand, but using that with the machine learning process to better understand maybe who's more susceptible to these uh, um, types of infections and all. I mean, that's all things that will be done in the future, you know, with uh, this type of research and all. But I think that can be very important with the direction the medicine is going. And I think all of this wouldn't be possible without technology. So at, at a different level, LymeDisease.org has maintained this, this My Lyme Data Registry, which is a patient-powered uh, data machine that provides information such as what's the most common symptom for chronic Lyme disease, what's the most effective treatment for chronic Lyme disease, and they're providing it to Lyme patients so it can help them make informed decisions for their treatment and also for their diagnosis. But I think what we're talking about here is so much more powerful and it's taking it to just to a complete next level of building a database that you're gonna be able to identify all of these pathogens. And then once you get your testing out there and you're just building this, this machine and you're using big data, you're gonna be able to hopefully identify which of these pathogens 
are more severe than others. And then down the road, maybe three, four, five years from now, be able to sort of chart that for people to say, here are the, the pathogens you have, here are the ones we're finding to be the least likely to make you sick. And here are the ones that are, we're finding to make you most likely to be sick. And that data can be super powerful for physicians and patients, and hopefully eradicate a lot of the suffering that we're seeing in Lyme patients today. Absolutely. And that is really the hope of, you know, what we're, that, that is what we hope we can really help and do. Well, that's what we think we, it's what we know we can do, frankly, but you know, it's, we're, we're in the first steps of it now and it's going to, you know, take some work and all, but uh, we're really excited to be able to, you know, bring this forward because this is truly what, um, you know, uh, just the tick-borne community um, needs is this type of testing. Yeah, Matt, there, there, there are actually two stages. This our, our first goal is to allow infectious disease docs to understand that, that these chronic Lyme patients and acute patients, but the, particularly the, the chronic Lyme patients do in fact, indeed have pathogens in their body. So that's the first definition. Uh, long-term, all the information we give them on the, on, the, on the variety of pathogens that might be there. I mean, that's, that's obviously a secondary goal because you know, you know, what, you know, because you've got to worry about, okay, what, what therapy needs to be applied to properly uh, uh, attack that. That's, that's a, that's a secondary goal for, for, your, for future years here as well. And the one, and the third goal from our perspective, you think about what we do with regard to recognizing antibiotic resistance. Uh, we, we use the term and Dr. Shope uses the term, this is his term precision medicine. I mean, it's sort of a buzzword that's thrown around, but the, what that means is that by just taking an antibiotic, that's you know, and sepsis, whether it's sepsis or or Lyme disease, just by taking arbitrarily taking antibiotics because you think it's going to help, that creates antibiotic resistance in the bugs. They continue to mutate around that because it's not effective therapy. But precision medicine means that by identifying the antibiotic resistance characteristics, then you change the antibiotic so that it's targeted, so that you can kill that pathogen right away. By using the right antibiotic. Those, those are critical factors as we go forward. Those are the problem, the problems that we want to help solve and create more research to help solve those problems going forward, because that's what's going to help patients. So Gary, from a business modeling standpoint, I'm wondering whether I, I can suggest to you that perhaps you open up an element of your business where you're not just receiving ticks from one lab, for example, but that you're, you're, you become a tick testing lab yourself. Because if you have people who are purchasing your services, your tick testing services, they are going to be getting a substantially better report than anyone else is otherwise able to provide. But at the same time, you're also now building up this database where you're identifying all the non-human DNA and RNA that's in these ticks. And you're, you, you sort of have the best of both worlds. And then again, I'm gonna argue, and that will also develop your relationship with the community of people who need the service. And I understand that you're, you're building your model for doctors, but quite frankly, we think the model is more importantly, uh, it, it should be built for, for the patient community and getting this direct, inform, you know, direct information from the patient community. So let me suggest to you, Gary, that you open up a tick testing lab as well as part of this. Uh, <laughs> well, let's go In back. your free time. Let's, let's go back to your, one of your original questions about, about the entrepreneurial model. Here's the one thing that if I could use my old age experience that, that's really critical about entrepreneurial models and it's called focus. And you can't be all things to all people and you can't do everything. Now we have significant research capabilities and everything. So we're, and, and actually we were just on an orthopedic based because uh, uh, we are just now, I mean, what we're doing here is one of the, one of the first 
you know, and, and what the conversations we had this week is actually the first time we've come out, out of the closet with regard to what we're doing. We've stayed silent all on, on this for a long period of time, but we did this, we did this uh, little shark tank like thing that was orthopedic based. And the one, and we only had 14 minutes. I mean, it wasn't the right format to introduce our technology, but he suggested that we should only do one disease state. And, and you know, even though I wasn't able to say, uh, you don't know what you're talking about because the, the, tick, the tick-borne uh, um, uh, analysis gives us validation in urine. Sepsis gives us validation in blood. Orthopedics gives us validation in cerebral spinal fluid. So it's a big bite of the apple, but it creates the broad spectrum of what this technology can do in all these disease states. Now, if we start adding on to that, and, and we're trying to, because we're getting hammered with regard to the blood research with regard to the infections that are generated by the, the internal mechanism of infection for burn patients. We have cardiac people wanting to, if you start doing too much, you really won't accomplish what you need. So we're, even though it's a broad uh, uh, thing that we're doing, we, we, our expertise is what we do and, and, and collaborating with the people who are gathering ticks is, is the value, I think, because we can't do it all is really, and again, back to, and, and then and getting it to a point where we've really proven our case and hand it off to a bigger entity that can really blow it out to the country and to the rest of the world is really what we need to accomplish. That's the entrepreneurial model. You, you, you know, and these days in the medical world, um, the fact of the matter is most of the time, if you're dealing with medical devices, for instance, if you're a one trick pony, you take it so far and then you run into the door because you don't have the broad spectrum that J&J and Medtronic and all the other big dogs have and you get locked out. So you, you hand off your product and say, take it, take it forward, please. And if you believe in, in the contribution to the body of science, this sounds, this sounds like I'm painting a halo, but I came out of retirement because um, I, 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 retirement isn't my thing. And, and, and uh, if, but if, if you truly believe in doing what you're doing because you want to help patients and contribute to the body of science, and yes, we'll make money as we go forward. But the fact of the matter is when, when entrepreneurial companies dive deep into this and hand off to the big companies, that's how it happens. I, I'm going to use Medtronic as an example. I used to work for Medtronic years ago and, and everybody, everybody thinks, uh, and, and those from Medtronic listening to this are probably going to, but I don't care, wiggle. But everybody thought of Medtronic as this innovative company. They were a company of acquiring little technologies like this to allow them to be the giant that they are. That's how, that's why the entrepreneurial model you're talking about, that contribution of the entrepreneurs to the bigger entity and the well-being of patients is important. Boy, I really got off on a tangent there, didn't I? No, you didn't. I, I think I think you hit it right on its head uh, because um I think the larger concern that I have, again, and we're, we're a Lyme disease podcast, is that the work that you're doing is, I think, bigger than you even understand. Because at a very basic level, we don't even know what's being spit into us. And you're already to the point where you're identifying what's being spit into us, what the combination is, whether or not you know, the medications are going to work. Um, and, and you know, you were just speaking of antibiotics, but we, we should identify herbs. We should identify a lot of other factors that should be tested. And then of course, the, the absorption rate, for example, of the individual person uh, when, when they're being given the antibiotics and it's just level after level after level of, of places where you're taking this. And I'm arguing to you at the very basic level about what the pathogens are 
We don't even have that. No less all these other levels of analysis that you guys are taking it to. Well, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you we we are absolutely confident we have it, and our methodology is going to be doing the science because this is how I was brought up through the ranks of whether you're dealing with heart valves, defibrillators, pacemakers, vascular grafts, in the world that I in the world that I grew up in. You do the science, you present the, the science for peer review. Other, otherwise, the insurance companies and the physicians aren't going to come on board unless you do the basic science. And so I think it's to the, to the, the, the Lyme Society's benefit if we do this properly and bring everybody on board in the middle of the identification and the therapies that are needed to help these patients uh, get over these, these horrific disease states. I don't disagree with that, but one of the concerns that we have, uh, and we interviewed Dr. McDonald, as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, is that um, you have to find a place to publish your research, right? Mm -hmm. And the people who are the gatekeepers of these journals where you're publishing your research may or may not be interested in having your research made available to those journals. And then if your research is not made available to those journals, then they are not gonna be part of the, the standard of care. And if that's not the part of the standard of the care, then doctors are not gonna use it because they don't wanna be either sued or they don't want to, they don't wanna find themselves before uh, medical boards or licensing boards. So um, I agree with you that it, it will be wonderful, Gary, if you can take your, your research and you can make it available. I'm just not as confident as you are that you're going to be successful because of the political biases that you're going to have to overcome. Well, uh, yeah, and, and, and obviously um, being somewhat experienced in, in, in this, I'm, I'm going to uh, disagree because uh, I'm one of these guys, I, I bite the tire and I hit the road as many times as I have to, but I take a contrarian view with regard to, because there's, you, you, you touched upon something very interesting. Um, but as we do the variety of disease states, if we, if we, if we just take it out of the, the broad spectrum of what we're doing and we do sepsis and prosthetic joints, the credibility of the diagnostic capability will wash over with regard to the credibility. And the one thing that you run into, I got to be a little bit delicate here because the one thing that you run into is if you have, uh, if you have physicians who are who are studying a particular different methodology than you have, and you run against that brick wall. But, you know, in this world, I've been doing this a long time. You recognize that, and you go to those who 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 understand who don't have those biases, so to speak. There are enough scientific journals out there that we get to publishing the science, not only behind tick-borne disease, but also the other disease states that we have. Uh, it. it it, it, you're going to find that, uh, that other companies are going to try to mimic what we're doing is really what it amounts to. But I, but I believe that, that we will be able to get it out there because there's not just one journal that will publish this information. There are many that will publish it and we will find them because. But, but Alex, I, I'm sorry, Gary, I agree with you. See, I, because your spectrum is broad and because you're not just in the tick-borne arena, you are arguing that there's research you're doing research on, 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 on particular blood sampling and on urine sampling and on spinal fluids in arenas outside of the tick-borne illness. Once you get credibility in other places, then those folks who may have a political bias in the tick-borne arena are stuck with the results that you're getting in other places. So look, I'm excited about your approach. I get it and I am excited about it, but I, I do want to caution our listeners um, because 
there's going to be a lot of excitement generated by what you guys are sharing right now. And some of that uh, has to be, um, you know, tempered by some of the political challenges that, you know, that the organizations that you're trying to appeal to have prevented, you know, doctors like Dr. Burescano and Dr. Um, Dr. McDonald, who are now finally being perceived as being correct in their research and finally finding, uh, you know, publication avenues for research that they did 30 years ago. So, you know, I, I think I think your timing is certainly better than theirs was, and your tools are different than their tools. And your approach, Gary, I love that you're in a number of different areas, not just tick-borne, but you know, you you should be you should be aware that I, that that you're running into a political thicket. Oh, actually, we because I wasn't aware of the thicket until I until I you know accidentally ran a you know like I said we we ran into this whole desire to to uh, address the unmet need of Lyme um, by having an orthopedic surgeon tell me tell me a story about a friend of his who could no longer uh, practice surgery and he said you ought to apply this to Lyme and that's when I went home did the research and I the thicket became uh, I became aware of it very quickly. As the, as the old saying goes, the Lyme wars, but, uh, and that's what we're out, that's what we're out to, to, to problem solve, quite frankly, about we want to, we want to solve that problem of those thickets. We're going to cut them down. So one of the burning questions I know every listener is probably thinking about this entire time is when do you estimate that this testing will be brought to market for either patients to order on their own or through their doctor so they can finally get the validation they need if they haven't had a positive diagnosis or to confirm their suspicions about other tick-borne diseases beyond what their current diagnosis is. So do you have an estimated time frame that you think this will be available to the general public to really help change their lives, frankly? Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'll answer from my perspective and then Dr. Shope, you can answer from your perspective, but uh, we have work to do with regard to um, uh, some, some CLIA validation, which won't, we shouldn't, shouldn't take a long period of time. We wanna work with, um, um, Lyme knowledgeable doctors and do uh, significant uh, clinical studies that will be published. Our goal is to have uh, peer-reviewed journal publications for infectious disease society folks to peer review uh, by the end of 2021. The answer to your question is by, uh, I'm assuming that by uh, the end of summer going into the fall, we should be in a position whereby we can quote unquote, uh, charge patients for, for that test. But in the meantime, everything, all the dollars spent, because uh, I'm, I'm gonna be out raising money to, to support because these tests we run, every time we run a test, it costs thousands of dollars. So we have to have a, a multitude of samples in and it's gonna cost, uh, healthcare research, you don't realize how, how much money you have to spend to prove the points that we're talking about. So I'm gonna be out raising uh, investment money to support this. Uh, but then by the end of the year, I'm supposing that we can probably um, be in a position to charge based on uh, uh, um, CLIA validation issues. And we'll be continuing to doing the uh, clinical studies going forward into 2022, but certainly in 2022, but I think at the end of 2021, uh, people want to pay to be tested. We'll be in a position to do that. I don't know, Dr. Shope, do you disagree with that timing? Because it, that, all that testing stuff is in your lap. Yeah, that, that is, isn't it? Um, no, I, I don't disagree with that uh, general time, uh, time frame. Um, absolutely with in within a year is more than safe to say, I think by the end of this year, we will be in the position 
with the right amount of regulatory data to um, to actually offer the test um, to the public should they want to you know pay for it. And then, as uh, my father mentioned, we'll be continuing to do the additional studies to you know do the um, you know the clinical proof that uh, you know other physicians and people need in order to understand the test. Yeah, and Rich, if I could address this to you, because I know this is uh, some of the, the, the points of your conversation, because I come from a little bit of a bias that, uh, you know, never, you know, again, that orthopedic uh, broadcast we were on, everybody was so, they're, they're, the, the big uh, dot-com bubble these days are point of care and bedside testing and et cetera. And we're a lab-based test because what we do is so, so complex. But I have this uh, concern that if I don't, if we don't do the science to properly inform uh, infectious disease doctors, we can, we can test a patient and we can say, this is what you have, but then what do you do with that information if you, if you don't have a physician on board to prescribe the antibiotics to, to treat it? So I, I struggle with how do we do this without getting individual patients wound up without having an available treatment by having credibility at the physician base. So we wanna do this in concert with physicians and not just have a patient-driven information system. And I, you may or may not disagree with that, but that's something I struggle with. Yeah, I, I do disagree with that because I, I, <laughs> I, don't think, uh, I don't think the doctor should be driving the care model. I think the patient should be employing the doctor to, to establish the care model. And um, it, it actually has been in our experience. And again, we've, we've interviewed uh, almost 200 chronic Lyme disease patients at this point. And what we are seeing from the standpoint of the pattern of success when people are suffering from chronic Lyme disease is when they're empowered to take control of their care and they're building their team of professionals to assist them with their treatment model, rather than going to an infectious disease doctor, for example, and having that doctor with the limited tools that they have ultimately outline a care um, model for you. So yeah, I would, uh, Gary, quite frankly, I think I would, with all due respect, disagree. I, I would prefer it be a patient-driven model rather than a okay. uh, doctor-driven model. Yeah, no, this, uh, I mean, this, these are good conversations to have because obviously we, it, it, you know, because we're reaching out, you know, all, all good companies have market research and this is great market research. But however, the only question I have, and, and I'm not, I'm not, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not negating that. My, con, my question is, if, to, if the patient, the patient uh, initiating it, we get the test, but to treat the disease, if they have to get an antibiotic, they, the patient can't do that themselves. The physician has to write a script for the antibiotic. And that, I guess I'm trying to define my, my, my concerns is if the, if the patient doesn't have access to the antibiotic to treat it, then what are they going to do with that information? Well, the patient does have access to an antibiotic. They go to their doctor, they give their doctor the test uh, results that they have located themselves, and they talk with their doctor about what the proper treatment tools would be, one of which may be an antibiotic or particular type of antibiotic. So you, you do have access to antibiotics. You just have to get the, um, the approval of your, your medical partner to use that tool. So okay. I, uh, I, I, do think, I do think it really should be patient-driven rather than uh, doctor-driven. And, you know, part of the problem is going back to the discussion we had a moment ago, which is, is doctors 
are often concerned about their licenses. They're often concerned about medical malpractice claims. They're concerned about a number of different challenges that are presented when the standard of care is established by politically driven people who are controlling access to medical journals. So the only way that we can, we can overcome that challenge is by going directly to the patient community. And when you go directly to the patient community and they are now driving the care plan, then there's less risk to the physician and there's a greater likelihood that I'm going to get the treatment that I need. I mean, I, I've had really bad experiences with doctors that I had long-term relationships with after I was bitten by a tick. And I now understand why the, why the results were so bad, but quite frankly, that's what generated this podcast. It was my personal challenge with the doctors that I was working with, who I don't work with anymore, by the way, um, that, that, that drove you know, me you know, to, to working with Matt and, and working on this podcast. So um, again, I, I, I'm certainly happy to debate with you about this, and I'm not sure our listeners well, no. will hear me and you debate uh, about this anymore, but I, I strongly urge you to consider a patient-centered model rather than a doctor, at, and, and in, in particular, an infectious disease doctor, because we have not really had, in our experience, many patients work with infectious disease doctors and get a good result. But isn't that, uh, you've just described the thicket that exists, and I guess isn't the goal for us to change the thicket whereby when a patient asks for a, a, a kit, they take it to the doctor, the doctor recognizes it's a valid test and gives them the antibody. Isn't that, isn't that what we're trying to, to get to eventually? Ultimately, well, yeah. or I, I say antibiotic because obviously you're talking about things I know nothing about with regard to other ther therapy methodologies and I don't want to go there, but I was, I'm, I'm focused on antibiotics for you know, Ultimately, Gary, I'm hoping and I'm praying that you folks are going to be able to give doctors the tests they need to come to the conclusions that they need to, because I think most doctors are afraid to make a clinical diagnosis and establish a care plan based on the clinical diagnosis because it creates risk. I understand that. I understand you don't go to medical school so that you can lose your license. You don't go to medical school so you can get sued. I get that. So we need some objective testing for these folks so that they feel comfortable with treating because they're not comfortable treating with a, with a clinical diagnosis. But we're a long way away from that. And what I'm arguing to the two of you is you have gold that can help people and suffering from Lyme disease. And if we wait until you get through all of these processes that you're going to go through before it becomes a standard of care, many people are going to be sick chronically and many people are going to die. So I apologize for the frustration, but that's- no, 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 no. Well, give, give me six months. <laughs> give me four months. Let's do it that way. Give me four months to prove a couple of points, but, uh, um, and actually we're, uh, we're actually opening up some doors with uh, DOD, NIH and some other, other um, and hopefully CDC sometimes. So uh, to me, I, I think what, what, what we're obligated to do is to continue to drive as fast and as furious as we can with regard to impacting and knocking on all those doors with regard to credible information so that we do turn this ship around. All our little tugboats are going to turn this ship around so that the patients get the right therapy. In my, in my view, we're going, to, we're going to put it out there and make it available as fast as we can. That's all I can promise you. Uh, but we're also going behind the scenes, make sure that we have science and trying to, to trying to cut that thicket down a little bit so that the doctors are on board as well as the patients. That's, that's my goal. That's I hope anyway. And that's, that's certainly our prayer. So Matt, do you have anything else for these brilliant men that we've uh, been blessed to interview today? No, I just want to thank 
Carrie for introducing us to these to Alex and Gary. If it weren't for Carrie from Sam Spoonie, we wouldn't have met Gary or Alex and been able to have this wonderful conversation and share this with our audience and provide hope for the future of the Lyme community. So I just want to thank both Gary and Alex and also Carrie for introducing us to you guys. Well, well thank you, Matt. Thank you, Rich. We, we appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Yeah, guys, thanks so much. This has been uh, this has been great uh, again to know you guys more and you know continue to talk about this. So thanks yeah, for having us. Let's continue these discussions. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with our guest, Dr. Alexander Shope, and his dad, Gary Shope. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about untargeted testing for targeted Lyme disease treatment, please visit the webpage at csidx.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer to us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.